to kind of explain, I guess, to those that don't know, I've been complaining to Dan, I started getting allergy stuff, man. Like we had just gotten a rain, like it rained that day mm-hmm. and then everything started growing and then allergies started mm-hmm. to hit me. And, uh, sometimes I'm, um, sometimes I'm okay. Sometimes it just takes me out. And this is one of those times where it just took me out. Um, so I've been hacking and, uh, you can hear it, <clears throat> but anyway, uh, today for some particular reason. And so this is what, two weeks later because we skipped yeah. a day because yesterday I said we shouldn't record because my voice was terrible. I might have no voice by the end of this, so we'll just see how this goes. Um, but uh, today, around three-ish, yeah, actually, yeah, um, I start to feel real lethargic, not great. Um, that weird woozy feeling you get when the fever's coming on, mm-hmm. right? I start feeling that, and I'm like, oh, no, I really hope that's not what this is. And so I go outside for a little bit, take a little bit of a walk around, and and I come back in, and I'm not feeling any better. Uh, If anything, I'm feeling worse. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to lay down for a little bit. So I lay down for a little bit, and then 5 o'clock rolls around, and I'm feeling a little bit better, but not great. 5.30 rolls around, and, you know, I'm I'm not positive this is going to happen. I'm not sure Yeah, we're going to Yeah, I wasn't either. Yeah. and I guess uh, I had a low-grade fever, and I guess it broke because all of a sudden mm. I'm just sweating, like right, right, everywhere, right. all over the place, right? Like no, no part of my body is not moist. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I, I don't know why I told that story other than to tell you that I'm not feeling great today. So if I sound weird, uh, it's because I feel weird. Coming up in this episode, dropping out of the Fediverse, the Tiny Text, Mozilla Watch, and uh, the community that holds us ransom. Our app is faster than light. Hello, and welcome to Season 3, Episode 9 of Linux User Space. I'm Dan. And I'm a sick Leo. Oh, Leo, I'm so sorry you're sick. I'm making it. I'm making it. You can hear it. So, you know, just just know uh, uh, I'm, I'm making it, though. <laughs> you know what else makes me sad? Uh, oh, I know what you're going to say. Oh, man, my, my Mastodon instance is going away, if not gone yes. already. I saw the, the agreement was such that you keep your... Uh, Yep, your Mastodon instance up and running for a few months after you a couple of announced months. that it's going to go away, right? Right. I mean, there are some ups and downs to Federation and joining the Fediverse. Um, and so, you know, one of the downsides is the instance that I'm on is is going away. Like the the admin wanted to move on because you know it's it's a time suck for them and. Uh, yeah. They just, they've got some family things going on and some personal life stuff and they don't have the time to devote to it. And even though I think it's very well run, they just don't feel like they can give it their all anymore. So. Right. And this is Mastodon.technology, Technology, which right? It's a very popular one. There's a lot of different people that are on it and different organizations too, not just people. KDE was on there and they had to move. Right. And I don't know, there's a bunch of other ones too, but as an example. 
Right. So if you were on, uh, if you are on Mastodon.technology, it may be time. It is time uh, for you to consider moving yeah. off to a different instance. Right. But here's here's where I'm going with one of the upsides of, you know, the way all of this works and what Mastodon has created is it's fairly easy to move. And yes. I, I had an option to be able to move. It wasn't like the platform went away. Um, right. So well, you can't kill the platform. It's like open source software. It's yep. It's it's out there and it's distributed and it's not ever going to completely go away. Yep. Probably once ever. once it's federated, those things right. just get propagated out to other instances, and so they'll always have uh, a bit of a history. Yep. Exactly. So, um, I you know had an option. It was easy. Clicked a few things. I basically started my new um you know, uh, account on another instance, link that back to my old one. And then there's a migration tool, um, that moves all your, all of your followers. So they don't have to, they don't have to know that you moved. Um, they're still following you. It just, right. it does all the heavy lift for you to move everything over. Um, and then anybody I wanted to follow, I could basically take the list that I had in my old instance and reimport that into the new one and then i'm automatically following them again too so uh, it that's pretty cool i think that is a super yes. neat thing and how slick it went was just amazing to me um how how seamless that transition was yeah uh, i did that from uh if you remember if, if anybody remembers uh when we were just starting mm -hmm. to talk about the mastodon stuff i had joined c.im right and uh, decided that that wasn't for me eventually, and then just moved on to Mastodon.social, which is what I, you know, hawk every time at the end of the episode. Right. Um, and yeah, the migration is absolutely easy. You go into settings, and it's migrate this account. Yep. And you do that on both accounts, the new account and the old account, kind of time together. And all of a sudden, everything is just cool. Yeah, everything everything is right there. Over. All your followers are there. All the people that you followed are there. And so if you went to my old address, if you will, it will tell you that I've moved over and yes. give you a link to that. So you don't even have to know that. So it's not like it's a bad thing necessarily that it's, you know, that I've moved. Nobody needs to know. It just just works. Exactly. I mean, if you were if you were like manually typing in uh, Dan's actual yeah. Mastodon address, it's, that's not going to work anymore. But um, it. Uh, I mean, it would at least give you the redirect. It would give you the that, redirect. Where you yep. could, but yeah, other than that, uh, when Mastodon.technology fully does go away, um, yeah, it won't work anymore. Yeah, that I won't suppose. work anymore then because the, you know, the DNS entry will be gone and everything, right? So anyway. Right. The, yeah. and so that is, a, discoverability is probably one of the issues, I, I would say, with the Federation. There's no one place to go, um, you know, so... I mean, that's kind of an unfortunate side effect is you you have to go around to all of the different federated instances to, to find the different people. I mean, right. you know, sort of, right? And then, uh, but the benefit to that is, you know, the load is shared uh, amongst all of these instances. Um, the entire service is distributed out there. And so right. no one person is totally responsible for that. Like, you know, the alternative you know, bird site place. 
um, you know, Twitter where there is there's, only, there's one. only one, right? And if that went away, it's gone. Everybody's gone. Yeah. These are all community run. Someone's pouring some blood, sweat, and tears into running this stuff. Probably right. dollar signs too um, are going into it. Although a lot of people do contribute with things like Patreon and whatnot. Um, there's there's a lot of work behind it. So that's why it's it's a thing that people get burned out potentially, um, right. which is unfortunate. But a lot of them are great minded individuals, a lot like us, and uh, they want to help keep the community going. So I, I don't think it's going away anytime soon. And even though I said, you know, we're dropping out of the Fediverse, I only dropped out of it for a minute and then I moved right over to another place. That's the secret. <laughs> so, so for all the, uh, as you mentioned, blood, sweat, and tears that goes into running something like that, uh, Ash Furrow, yes. so long, and thanks for all the fish. If you haven't subscribed on YouTube, do it now while we have you distracted. And don't forget, you can watch us live on Twitch the day after an episode drops, uh, normally, you know, if things are going as planned. Yes, if if my allergies don't hit me right in the face uh, the day yeah, we're supposed to do it. <laughs> yeah. Ooh. So you watch for the announcements in all the social places and uh you you'll see. Um I love our patrons and I know Leo does as well. I almost can't keep up with all the new folks that are joining and that's really a great and a great feeling. We appreciate you. Um if you like what we're what we're doing, you too can support us over at patreon.com slash Linux user space. It was 1986. Email was in. And email clients for Unix specifically were in high demand. And Dave Taylor's Elm Mail System was top of the heap at Hewlett Packard. Elm took its name from the E-L in electronic and M in mail. It was one of the first few email clients that had a text user interface and was also open source under a BSD-like license. But a few years later, in 1989, at the University of Washington, with messages flying back and forth using the very same Elm, Lawrence Lundblade and his cohorts were looking for something that had ease of use written all over it. And with Elm defaulting to Emacs or VI for message composition, it was obvious this wasn't it. The stopgap solution was to use a hacked version of Micro Emacs. Some other issues with Elm at the time was that it didn't have an easy way to access lists of folders or the address book. And to top it off, if you wanted to read messages, you'd need a totally separate program. Enter Pine, the freeware-like answer. Using Elm as a starting point, the name Pine was a natural choice. Pines were, of course, trees like the elm, but abundant in the Northwest. Lundblade notes that a common misconception is that pine stood for pine is not elm. However, he had always thought elm was a fine starting point. So if it stood for anything, which it really didn't, it would have stood for pine is nearly elm. With the naming out of the way, Lundblade set himself up to work on the address book folder manager, and message indexer, while Mike Sable worked on the message composer. Soon, very little of Elm was left, and the message composer Sable was working on got its name, Pico, for Pine Composer. It also took its name from the metric 
prefix of the same name. Mark Crispin, also at the University of Washington, had been working on a C client library that, among many other things, made its way into Pine. It was then that the last vestiges of Elm code was removed from Pine. Pine stood on its own. The acronym might now mean Pine is no longer Elm. Now, Pine and by extension, Pico, were licensed openly and enjoyed very wide usage for a decade. But the vague promise of openness that the freeware-ish label provided wasn't good enough for the Debian project, which had a very strict standard for allowing new packages in as far as licensing goes. In 1999, Chris Allegretta, fed up with compiling the mess that was Pine and recent convert to Debian from Slackware, wanted to continue to use Pico, but without all the headache. And it needed to be included in Debian. There just had to be a true free software foundation-defined free alternative to Pine, while keeping as much of the pininess as possible. And maybe adding a few features here and there. Allegretta accepted his own conjured-up mission. He would rebuild Pine from the ground up. All new code, licensed under some type of free as in freedom license. One weekend later, TIP, which stood for TIP is not Pico, emerged. It wasn't done, of course. It wouldn't even launch without an accompanying file name. Had no help and no spell checker. Allegretta, unfazed, persisted. And the first official release was 0.5.0 on November 18th. 1999, under the GPL version 1.0 license. In the release, Allegretta noted in the README, TIP currently is below version 1.0, meaning it's not a completely functional editor. I have purposely put off features like being able to write files to disk until later so that all the other bugs can be worked out first and there's no chance of corrupting data. But on December 30th of 99, TIP was in trouble. As Allegretta had been told repeatedly up till now, the name TIP was already taken, recursive or not. It shared a name used by a Unix software used to remotely connect to modems. It had to change, and Allegretta already had a new name lined up, Nano. And wouldn't you know it, it was another recursive acronym. Nano's another editor. Fool Chris once, shame on you. But Chris can't get fooled again. So he did what came natural asked the same folks that pointed out the first mistake. The last version of TIP was 0.7.3, released on January 6th of 2000. And on January 9th, TIP re-emerges as Nano, complete with new homepage at version 0.7.4. A few days later, on the 15th, the next version, 0.7.6, begins its life by increasing loading speed of larger files and has even been clocked in faster than both Pico and Vi in some tests. This is also the first instance of naming the releases. This release? Lightning, obviously. Why would you call it anything else when it's so fast? There are many, many releases, and in the early days, most were just days apart. So listing them all would take up the rest of the episode. So in the interest of time, some interesting release names or features are the focus here. Still in 2000, 0.7.7 on the 17th of January is named the way too much stuff changed in this release release. I love that name. 0.7.9 on the 24th introduced spell checking. 
it relied on spell or iSpell in that order. You could also specify your own spell checker. Most people don't know this, but spell checking in Nano is typically on by default. But since spell is not always included with distributions, it doesn't actually work. 0.8.0 on the 25th is called Let's Try and Be at Least a Little Portable, okay? Release. With a focus on, you guessed it, portability. On the 8th of February, version 0.8.3 brought with it the long-missing help. It wasn't fleshed out, but it was certainly there. On the 19th of April, version 0.9.3 was dubbed the Microsoft, with a dollar sign, release, because it introduced more bugs than it fixed. On the 18th of May, version 0.9.8 released as the What Broke Now release, which addressed a bug where resizing the nano window would cause a crash. On the 7th of June, version 0.9.12 was the Lucky Day release, with lots of new features and, as Allegretta put it, bursting with yummy fruit flavor. On the 2nd of October, version 0.9.19 was released, making it easier to build a Windows port and was dubbed the Chris is getting married in less than a week and needs a distraction release. In the new year, and on the 7th of January 2001, the last official release was minted before the code freeze to enable getting 1.0 out the door. It was called the Just One More Feature I Swear release, and that feature was a built-in file browser, something that Pico had for a very long time. After three releases with the pre-suffix on March 22nd, 1.0 is released. And somehow, after the auto-indent wrapping bug was fixed, no bugs were known to be in Nano at the time. But of course, we know how that goes. By this time, updates slowed down considerably. Time between each was measured in months, not days. On the 1st of July, in league with Yodir Malak and Tom Lear of the Mutt Project, an email client that started its life independent of Elm, but taking lots of inspiration from it, some of Mutt's code was added directly to Nano, enabling it to speed things up even more, among a few other things. Version 1.0.3 was aptly named the Mutt release. On the 26th of October, the GPL license was updated to GPL version 2 instead of 1, as it had been up to this point. But a hiccup in the header file still referenced version 1. It was fixed in the next release. At the end of 2001, on the 11th of December, with version 1.1.4, Nano gained some color syntax support, another feature which very few people know about to this day. On the 5th of March, 2002, the Let's Change Everything and See What Breaks release was issued and was followed up a few months later on the 25th of July with version 1.1.10, What Didn't We Break release. The release brought with it a new backup file option to make not breaking things just a little bit easier. It would simply add a tilde to the end of the old file name to preserve it while writing the changes to the original file. In 2003, Oddball and Make Jordy Happy releases were the final two releases before the freeze for the upcoming 1.2 release. And after three pre-releases named Enough Already, Bugs in My Pockets, Bugs in My Shows, and the last testing version, no really, 1.2.0 was issued on the 19th of February, 2003. But it didn't get a name. 1.3 was released on the 22nd of October with lots of new features, including the ability to repeat the last search without prompting. 
A change that was in the works during the Nano 1.2 cycle, but made official now, was that Chris Allegretta handed over maintainership of the project to David Lawrence Ramsey. 2004 saw five no-name releases, and 2005 saw five releases as well, with only 1.3.6 on the 20th of March being named Shout It From The Rooftops. In 2006, getting really good at three pre-releases and a full release, Nano does it again. One pre-release in August, two in October, and the final 2.0.0 release in November on the 6th. In 2007, with the release of 2.0.7, and with the upgrading of the GPL license to version 3, Ramsey stepped down as maintainer, and Allegretta picked up the mantle again, sort of. In 2008, the next release following Ramsey's departure was 2.1.0 with the title of Under Old Mismanagement, referencing Allegretta's re-takeover. 2008 saw a steady stream of eight releases. From 2009 to 2015, the project was full steam ahead, adding features and fixing bugs. And while Allegretta was still the maintainer during these years, most of the actual contributions came from Benno Schulenberg. And not just a few. A quick peek over the three years leading up to mid-2016, Schulenberg had made almost 1,300 commits, while second place, held by Allegretta, came in at 64. Jordi Malek clocked in 6. Yes, raw commits aren't really a good measure, but it does give a good idea of where the raw muscle was at the time. Speaking of mid-2016, on the 6th of May, after pings from Schulenberg to merge recent bug fixes for 2.5.4, Allegretta announced his thus far attempt at finding a new maintainer before the 2.6 release, stating, I'd love to crown a new official maintainer, but I'm not aware of anyone who has a time commitment, who's willing to assign their work to GNU, and will work inside the Savannah system. At least, one hasn't materialized yet. The conversation continued with Allegretta saying, I need all folks who are actively submitting patches to speak up right now about whether they want their changes to be assigned to the FSF and or whether they're willing to work in the Savannah system. If folks are not interested in following that process, the best thing might just be to move to GitHub or another repository and abandon the guys that we are acting according to the GNU guidelines. Shortly after these emails, Schulenberg was crowned the official maintainer. But after that chat, and later in June 2016, the public discussion and reportedly private conversations between Allegretta and Schulenberg, Schulenberg makes a big request. Remove Nano from the herd. In other words, Nano will no longer be a GNU project. Schulenberg says this is because he was unwilling to agree to more than 100 pages of text, the GNU philosophy, coding standards, maintainer's manual, the lot and that I assign copyright to GNU. During the days following, Nano 2.6.0 Rubicon was released with the last line reading, and with this release, we take leave of the herd. Bye, and thanks for all the grass. The Nano website, code commits, and the release notes were scrubbed of their references to GNU. Debian had even acknowledged and accepted the change. For the next few months, Nano might have been in trouble, most of this never actually made the news, except for in retrospect. And on the 1st of September 2016, concessions were made on the part of the Free Software Foundation and Schulenberg, and the Nano Project would stay part of the herd. 
The release that accompanied the announcement was 2.7.0, Sunny. The release note said, With this release, we return to GNU. For just a little while, we dreamt we were tigers, but we are back in the herd, back to a healthy diet of fresh, green, free grass. With the past behind them, Schulenberg continued to lead the project, as a leader, as well as in commits. After this, Nano got boring, and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. However, some of the names were interesting. 3.0 was released on the 9th of September, 2018, with the name Water Flowing Underground. 4.0 was released on the 24th of March, 2019, with the name Thy Rope of Sands. 5.0 was released on the 29th of July, 2020, with the name Among the Fields of Barley. Prepare yourself for these. I will not get them right. Mm-hmm. 6.0 was released on the 15th of December, 2021, with the name Humor Heft Oak Zane Luke Content. And the most recent, 6.4, Regen Talk Dunkelbund Hundetwasser. And that is the end of the nano history as at least I could find it. I don't know, Leo. I think you read those names really well. Uh, one was Dutch. I think uh, yeah. 6.0 was Dutch. Um, I'm, I'm, I, I'll take your word for it. I, I feel I mean, like I murdered it. But... It's not your native tongue. I mean, I think you, I think you okay. did an excellent job, right? And, uh, and 6.4 was, was German. There were a lot of, yeah. there were a lot of different uh, languages. There, was a, there were quite a few Spanish ones in there, too. Uh, but none of those made the show. So, just a little bit about Nano. I know um, I let the cat out of the bag that Vim was my favorite command line text editor. Um, I don't dislike Nano, though. I I like Nano just fine. Um, I just feel more comfortable, mostly because I learned the key bindings in in Vim kind of early. And it's just not the same. Um, You know, I I don't... you know, you open up Nano and all of a sudden you've got HJKL all over your your, your oh, text, right? Yeah. It, because you're you're trying to navigate, and uh, that's not really good sometimes. So, and I, I I constantly am mashing the escape key to to get to the command, you know, to get to the command, and that doesn't that's not what that does. So, um, you know, so it's it's mostly about familiarity with the key bindings and just kind of. In- intuitively pushing those things. Um, other than that, I think Nano is a is a perfectly fine, you know, text editor, and I can I can get by with it very well. Um, obviously, the thing that everyone loves is it tells you how to quit right down there at the bottom. Yes, there's no ambiguity whatsoever. It's right there, and uh, one yep. one that doesn't show up on the bottom uh, on the bottom row is Control S, which does exactly what you would expect and and mm-hmm. saves the file as it is. Doesn't quit or anything like that. You still got to Control X to do that, but it does save. And I find myself uh, smacking Control S like a lot mm-hmm. when I'm yep. uh, if if I'm writing or something like that. Save early, uh, save often. There you go. <laughs> you know, had I cut my teeth on Vim uh, or VI, I I likely would have the same exact opinion as as you do. Uh, but um, I I was brought up with Windows three point one and mm-hmm. Windows ninety five, and uh, with Windows ninety five came with it Notepad, which was pretty much what I used to type anything. Right, and its key bindings are similar not the same obviously but similar no. to nano 
And so now, when I open up Nano, it feels very familiar, which I think is right. why it is my uh, my editor of choice. I'm I'm yeah, I'm that's not why perfect. it's popular too. I mean, it's yeah. it's it's may very well be the most popular. I'm not sure about that, but um, certainly hand in hand with uh, Vim, probably these days. Um, on the command line, it's certainly those are the two you see installed by default and oh yeah and and whatnot so um the availability is really strong um nano might even be taking the lead on installed by default these days too so um yeah i i I think uh popularity has a lot to do here um and i oh yeah yeah i am not alone uh no no no, does have does have its following Mm mm-hmm I, I don't know. This almost, I'm not, I think this might constitute uh, us hitting all of the major command line text editors. There are others, of course, but these, I think, are the major players uh, still in the field, if you will. Um, and certainly we've talked about the beginnings and where we're at today. And Vim and Nano and Emacs are very actively maintained even still to this day and that is yes impressive considering where they came from nano being the newest of course but um all of them have had well over two decades worth of uh contributions at this point which is yes phenomenal phenomenal so are there are there any other text editors that that are of similar age that have widespread usage so if you have uh I, I'd, I'd like to know if you have I suggestions what is what is the uh the the next text editor or do we move off into different other types of software uh to dig into the history of yeah i mean i know um sort of offhandedly uh, leo and i were joking like what about different shells because oh yeah uh it, you know that was Sort of an offhanded thing, but oh, it was because of Ash, wasn't it? It was because of Ash that was included yeah. in Alpine, but right, um, Ash, Bash, Seashell, Zish, uh, Zish Fish. Mm-hmm. Um, what? What? I mean, I know there's about a million others. I think those are those are it, but right, or at least where we'd start. Um, there's a lot of that, I suppose. I don't know. Is that something to move on to, or maybe could what be else? fun? What else do we move on to? There's got to be something. You got to let us know. Yeah, give us some feedback. You can catch great topics as they unfold on our subreddit or our news channel in our Discord server, um, linuxuserspace.show slash reddit or linuxuserspace.show slash discord. That'll get you to those. Um, or, like we said, give us some feedback. Uh, we'd love to have a little discussion on Telegram or Matrix or, you know, maybe Mastodon or Twitter, give us give us a shout on one of those places, and uh, we'll see what we can talk about. All right, time for one of our favorite segments of all time, uh, Mozilla Watch. Mozilla Watch, it's time. So they recently had a release, um, 106, and that's out now. It came with it, I think, some pretty big highlights. My favorite being uh, PDF support mm-hmm. seems to me to be the best now in 
all browsers. I agree. You get full-on annotations. Another feature that is pretty great is improved form filling, if you will, because Firefox yes. can open up your PDF that is a form um, that has fillable you know, fields, and you can input your information into right into those fields and save them just like you, you know, would on a different reader or, you know, PDF editing suite, which costs some money, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, it, it's kind of cool to be able to do that right in your browser, I think. I think the PDF support in Firefox, as far as browsers go, like you said, is bar none the best. Well, I think um, you you still have Adobe Acrobat Reader. You do still floating around as kind of the de facto standard of you know what a PDF reader should be able to do and what it should right. be. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but Firefox is now one to one with Acrobat Reader, and we can just kind of ignore it now forever. I think for the most part, yeah. Like maybe the only thing you can't do is digitally sign those things. Ah, uh, okay, but true. other than, if you're just filling out the form, like, it totally works just fine. Well, if you can annotate, who needs a digital signature? That's you true. Can just you do can a real actually one. real signature on it. That's a good point. Yeah, so a lot of great features, especially improvements in the PDF uh, functionality in the web browser, which is amazing. Absolutely. Another thing that's pretty cool in this release is there is... Uh, the ability to make a private browsing shortcut, you know, have it down in your dock or in your menu um, right there so that you can just launch a private browsing window without having to do the right click thing or go into the menus and do a new window that is a private browsing window or any of that stuff. You just have a complete shortcut and have it be private browsing, which is kind of handy um, I know, especially if you're not using the multi-account uh, uh, container tabs yes. sometimes, and you want to quickly launch into something um, as a different account, potentially, um, you can use the private browsing window because it doesn't have any of those cookies or cache or any of that stuff in it. Right. And, you know, actually, when, when I saw this as I was going through the little welcome after the update, uh, I I thought to myself... Uh, I clicked OK on it, and it gave me the little icon. And I was like, mm-hmm. why would I even want this? Um, but it, it struck me pretty quickly. You can't open a private window without either multiple clicks mm-hmm. or already having Firefox open. Right. So multiple clicks, right? You can right-click on it and open a new private window. Or in Firefox, while it's open, you can go to the hamburger menu, new right. private window, or Control-Shift-P, I think. Um, that sounds right. But but either way, it's just a it's just less steps, Absolutely. and it would act the same as Firefox Focus on the mobile devices. So right. it gives you that immediate window into privateness and just fewer steps. Yeah, I think it's cool. I like that a lot. I don't know if I'm going to use it because I always have Firefox open anyway, and I can just Control Shift P. But that's fair. Uh, it is it is nice to to have the uh, the one click. And yep. just be done with it. Um, the big thing that Leo and I both are excited for, though, is... And many people are not. They they are... There not. are some haters here. Uh, we're, we're, we might be in a minority. Um, Firefox View. 
So it's like history, you know, the history page that you had before, but much better, I think. Mm. Um, it really lets you close everything out and come right back and open up and you can kind of pick up where you left off if you so choose. But the other beauty behind it that, that I know Leo loves yes. is it will sync with all of your devices. So if you want to open those tabs in another device somewhere else, you can do that. The tab pickup is what it's called. Mm -hmm. And it's got the three most recent tabs that you've been using on your other devices. Um, and as I was telling Dan, the whole point of this is that I, I work on this history for a good long time. And there are times when I find a cool link on my phone um, and want to start typing that out. But I don't do that on my phone. That's, that's terrible. Uh, right. So I get to the <laughs> desktop and I always forget how to get to the open tabs on other devices stuff i forget all the time well it's not again it's not straightforward it's not it's, you know it's a couple of clicks or whatever to get there right but immediately opening up firefox uh, i can click on the little firefox icon in the top left go to the tab pickup click on the thing immediately pick up where i left off so obviously lots of people out there are not fans of this particular feature but it is absolutely amazing for me in what I do, because I move from device to device to device all mm -hmm. the time. If I just had one main device or maybe even two devices, maybe it wouldn't be so right. Um, That's true. So so good, but I love it. It's amazing. And My, e I even agree. if you don't, it's really easy to take it off. Yes. Right click, remove. Yeah, then it's gone. I mean, if you don't advertise a little bit, you don't know about it. So I mean, it's nice that they put it up there, uh, at least for now. The last thing I'll mention. Uh, there's more colorways. I don't know if anybody really cares about that, but... You know what, though? One of the very first questions that Vivaldi asks you when you mm. install it is what color do you want it to be? You're not wrong. You're not wrong. And this is the same exact thing, but I didn't hear anybody complaining about Vivaldi letting, letting you choose colors, but Firefox let you choose colors, and oh no, everything's burning down, and Firefox needs to focus on other things. It's just colors. Uh, uh, yeah, I hear you. I think maybe it's how much they push it um, out there for you. But again, maybe. if they don't let people know, they don't. You know, they won't know to go looking for it. Right. So no, but nobody, but like you know, folks like me dig around in the settings for a right. long amount of time. Would you like to have a topic covered or have some feedback? Uh, feel free to send us an email. Contact at linuxuserspace dot show. And speaking of feedback, we've got a few of them this time. Ooh. And I'm going to try to read through them um, a little quickly, maybe. Uh, first up, thanks for the fantastic podcast. Well, you're welcome. Uh, in your recent Emacs episode, you mentioned Emacs Pinky and your familiarity with Vim. I'm a Vim Keybindings Addict and happily use Emacs as my main editor for many years with the help of the Evil Package. It's near-perfect Vim emulation for Emacs that is hands down the best I've seen for any editor or IDE. Well, that's good to know. I might have to try that out. Mm-hmm. Emacs has had several VI and Vim emulation modes over its history, but Evil is by far the best. Check it out if you intend to 
on continuing with Emacs but want the familiarity, efficiency, and pinky friendliness of Vim key bindings and concepts. That's from Menno. Thank you, Menno. And uh, I don't know. I might have to try that out. I'm going to need you to. You're way more familiar with VI than I am, uh, so you're going to have to try it out. I, I'm sure there's a lot of other key bindings that um, aren't covered there because it does so many things. Emacs is just so encompassing. It um, definitely is. It's cool, though. I really got to say, like, I think it's a it's a it's a neat piece of software. Um, so I give it a lot of props. I really do. All right. Next email. Hello, fellows. Leo and Dan. Greetings. And I continue to love the show. Somehow I missed uh, the season two, episode 18, where you upgraded your SSD. So you can imagine my surprise as I lay down to sleep and put on the podcast recently. And two minutes in, I'm here about John G., who suggested the S31 Hynex drive. Tis I! I feel podcast famous now. Anyway, I learned of their chip history and felt like they were a safe bet. Um, that's the one. That's the one right there. Yep. Uh, it it has been. Uh, this is this is actually the drive that I'm using right now to uh, store all of the video and everything else that I do for editing. Um, it's quite fast mm-hmm. and SK Hynix. Yeah. I mean, they've solid stuff. They've done memory chips for a long time. It's just an easy pick. So he continues and says, uh, "Thank you so much for the shout out. I'm glad you liked the drive." I remain sold on Hynix, and my S31 mm-hmm. is going solid after two and a half to three years. I have a P31 NVMe uh, 500 gig on my main system, which is a refurb HP Elite Desk G2 Mini. And I will say those machines are workhorses because we had a bunch of those at um, work, and they just chug right along for a long time. Those are Those are solid machines. Easy to work on, too. Which and those great. are the real, real tiny ones that you could like yeah, mount behind huge. stuff. Um, yeah, you probably could. Um, they're not huge. They're a little bigger than probably your your Think Center thing that you've got there. The, okay. Um, but not much. A little thicker, probably more than anything. Cool. Um, and he says, yeah, the same sort of stuff. It's a great upgradable machine. He added mm-hmm. some Clev RAM uh, to it, which has Hynix chips on board. And a close connection to the SK Hynix, sort of like Micron and Crucial right? sort of uh, relationship. He says, so that's it, I suppose. I greatly enjoy the podcast and the report you guys have. Keep up the good work. Grace and peace, John G. Thanks, John. We we appreciate your feedback. Thanks, John. Last little bit of feedback that I'm going to go through is a little bit longer, but pretty cool just the same. It says, hey, Dan and Leo, I recently discovered your podcast and I like the approach you took to producing content about Linux. Most distro reviews are more like first looks and you don't really get the nuance of using a distro like in your reviews. That's why we use it for a whole month. And yes, I'm I'm so glad. I'm so glad that comes across. Mm-hmm. I'm somewhat seasoned, eight years at Linux, and I really appreciate the effort Leo goes through, me too. Uh, I really enjoy hearing about the history behind how the projects developed. Yeah, Leo is uh, a history buff, and I am too, but ah, Leo fun. really dives into it and, and gets deep on some of this stuff, which is fantastic. Oh, yeah. So 
I heard on a somewhat recent episode that Gen 2 is on your list, which is the Ooh. impetus for this email. I thought I would share some tips when it's Gen 2's turn. I've been using it since March of this year. So grain of salt disclaimer. And and grain of salt with uh when we do Gen 2. We might we might need to do Gen 2 the the first distro of the next season so we spend like the a break. sufficient amount of time mm -hmm. uh compiling chromium. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I don't know. We'll figure it out. I I think it's it's not off the list. Let's put it that way. Oh no, it's definitely going to happen. Um but we do have a couple lined up. We really do. We've we've had we've been bantering around a few of them for a little while. So, I mean, you know, we got to get those first. Um, he goes on to say, I would suggest using a live USB of a different distro to install Gen 2. This will allow you to have a web browser and refer back to the handbook if necessary. Uh, spoiler alert, you will. <laughs> Laugh out loud. Uh, the Gen 2 install ISO only gives you a TTY. Uh, Gen 2 occasionally releases a live ISO, but they don't update it very often. And it's not recommended for installing. So wait, uh, so should I run Arch Live and then use that to install Gentoo? I think you could. Yes, <laughs> and that would work very well, I suppose. It's still probably only command line, so you may want to pick a different live. No, we're just gonna go extra hard mode. You know, maybe maybe Lubuntu. That would be pretty great live. Hey, just... nice lightweight. Okay, all right. That could work. Um, or I suppose you could have a different machine somewhere too, sitting there to help you do your research. True. And, and maybe at the very least you got your phone. I don't know. Yeah. I, I have resorted to that before in the past for various different things. And it's de desperate times call for desperate situations. Sometimes you don't have an option. You don't. Uh, final paragraph here. Uh, like Leo, I own a framework laptop and Gen 2 runs great on it. Due to the newness of the hardware, when I started in March, I had to edit the kernel config and compile to get some of the components to work. Uh, all of those have since been added to the binary kernel, Gen 2 kernel bin, so I would suggest going that route. Um, oh, yeah. I'm not trying to make things hard, so that no. is quite, quite the, yeah, that, that's how I'm going to go with it. I would say if you don't have to compile your kernel, it's going to save you some time for sure. So... Uh, the people on Gentoo forums are great and very helpful. And he finishes it out by saying, thank you for the effort you put into the show. It's definitely unique and quite enjoyable. And that's from, that's from Ryan. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks everyone for your feedback. And if certainly if you want to uh, send us some feedback, you can hit us up on all the socials or like I said earlier, contact at linuxuserspace.show. First, up of our focus sessions community focus. focus so this time for community focus we're going to focus on the ransomware files ooh, ooh, this is ooh. a this is a podcast that i found um and am really starting to enjoy quite a bit um think like darknet diaries only mm -hmm. a little a, a little less of a story and a little more real world sometimes um it has a little little context of a story um often but there's a l few more interviews perhaps of what took place yeah i, I like um uh, this most recent episode that i listened to um 
started out very much like Darknet Diaries, yep. where, yeah, it's got the storytelling to it. And then uh, maybe after five or ten minutes after that story was ended, uh, they go and talk to one of the um, one of the folks that actually deals with that kind of stuff. So yep. so it's kind of like a two-parter. Um, yeah. Well, multi, multi-parter. Multi-part, yeah. Um, in that it's got a little bit of everything. But very focused on ransomware. And that's all it is. That's that's it. That's it. That's, that's ransomware. All, all these stories are. And, you know, it kind of falls in line with our current distro. Obviously, we're talking about Kali Linux for the month. Um, so we thought we'd, you know, have a little uh, have a little fun with that. It's not necessarily Linux per se, but um, certainly in the hacking realm. Right. And what could go wrong when it goes wrong and Ooh, man. how do you get out of it when it does go wrong i mean so yeah yeah it's it they're good well-produced episodes i'm i'm really enjoying it um they're not too long so that's kind of good too very good stuff so check it out the ransomware files one more focus one more do it Okay, so remember I told you that my um, disc died, mm-hmm. um, and and it was uh, the disc is fine. Um, boot got corrupted somehow, uh, fixed boot, and we're good again. Went so back uh, in order. yeah, I don't know what that. I don't know what happened there. It wasn't a. Uh, I, I I can't remember if it was an update or not. I don't think it was an update. Uh, oh no no no, it wasn't because I was. Um, I was just in the middle of doing stuff, and stuff started freezing. And yeah, anyway, corrupted data. Uh, got that fixed back up, and now the the disk is okay. Well, for now, anyway, I'm, so. I'm not using it. I'm not using it as a system disk anymore, just yeah, in case. I'm that gonna makes sense. Write a few gigs uh, to it before I trust it again. But, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I was able to get all my files off of it. I was able to boot it back up and everything. But, um, yeah, the trust isn't there anymore. That makes so, sense. In the interim, though, we still had to move files around. We did. And um, we decided to try something that is similar to Warpinator in that you can just, you know, kind of drag and drop or, you know, select the file and shoot it over wherever you want to shoot it. But um, it uses the magic wormhole protocol. Right. This one, not Warpinator, just Warp. Warp. And absolutely fantastic piece of software. Um, it is dead easy. They're really you don't need There's not a help. lot to it. No, no. No, no it's that's not much. You know, sender, the person that wants to send a file, you just open it up and pick up pick the file, and then receiver uh will put in the essentially what is just a, a string of words which which turns out to just be a password. So yeah, essentially, yeah. S- Right. So when you when you uh, as a sender when you select your file, the uh, the password is is given to you. You just copy paste it to the person that you're sending that file to, and they pop it into their warp, and all of a sudden the file is already moving yep. before you really do anything. It'll grab it straight from the clipboard. Once you click go, it starts transferring, and that's it. Yeah. No, I, I think this is a fantastic app, especially if you just want to move files around, um, even like temporarily, you know, like between machines that you don't have a permanent, um, you know, sharing agreement. Like SyncThing is great in that that's very permanent once you get it set up. 
you're always sharing those folders and files and stuff. And that's really nice for a lot of different stuff. But, you know, if I'm working on my laptop and I want to send Leo something, I may not have sync thing set up and right. installed on that. Um, you could, but it's, it's, it's just, if you want to do a one-off file from one place that you don't normally, um, warp is good. The other thing with warp is it will work, uh, on your local network. Um, Yes. You know, to share files if you wanted to do things that way. It kind of prefers your local network first mm-hmm. before the internet. So, um, also very, very nice. Um, and finally, it's one of the GNOME Circle apps. So yes. that gives it a little bit of clout and you know it's going to stick around and be well developed. Absolutely. So if you need to send some files, um, you don't have a permanent pipe set up between you yep. and the destination, Warp is a good choice. I, I agree. We we had success with that. We sent Ooh. I sent my video to Leo. I sent my audio to Leo and it happened relatively quickly, I think. It just did its thing and eventually showed up on his computer. Yes. Uh, the the really cool thing about that was that we tried different sizes of files, right? Yeah. Um uh we had maybe a couple hundred megabyte flags. Yeah the audio is not too big, right? A couple hundred megs, yeah. And that went pretty quickly, as you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I forced it, right? I mean, we we could have done some other service, but I wanted to move the what was it like five or six gigabyte video file that you had yeah. put together. Yep. Um, and you know, don't let your machine go to sleep. But that works just fine. It works as well. Yep. Yep. Came out. Came out just great. All right, that brings us to the end of the show, and next time. Next time is the history of Kali Linux. We'll give a few thoughts and whatever else we can cram into the show. Um, Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I still kind of can't believe Leo got me going this direction, but hey, I'm... It's it's because I asked you um, 25 episodes in a row, I think. At, At the end of every episode, we have to decide... Well, at the end of every distro episode... We have to decide what we're going to do next. And, you know, Every mostly time. as Every a joke, but yep. also with a with a smidgen of seriousness, I always go. I had always gone. So Kali's next, right? Mm-hmm. Every time he finally gave in. I finally gave in. Yes. But yes. He but made you know, a, he made some concessions. He said, you know. You might not want to use this as your daily driver, and you really don't. Right. You you want right. to use it for what it's for, and that's for you know penetration testing and vulnerability testing and and stuff like that. So, like they recommend, probably a VM is the way to go on this distribution. Yeah, if if you want to if you want to actually run something similar to Kali on a on a daily driver, you could just do Debian testing, which is fairly close to what Kali is but without all the tools and things that might get you in trouble right and yeah we'll talk more about it on on the next episode but i'll tell you kind of my approach to a lot of this without using kali on a regular oh yeah that okay okay good we'll have some suggestions i like it in between shows you can catch us on twitter mastodon telegram matrix discord whatever we're out there you can find us uh give us your suggestions and uh Join in the conversation. All the links in the show notes and on linuxuserspace.show. So, Leo, uh, where can we find you? I'm 
at Leo Chavez on Twitter and at Leo Chavez at Mastodon.social on the uh, the tutors. Yeah, the tutors. We can boost your toot. Hey. Hey. And I'm at Casey Easy on Twitter and now at Casey Easy at Mastodon.social as well. Join us in two weeks when we return to the Linux user space. Really, seriously. Uh, oh, man. Uh, yeah, I gotta say. <clears throat> yeah. I gotta say. I could tell you were struggling through, but thank well, you for doing that. Yeah, it wasn't... Um, and it, it, I didn't notice it until maybe midway through that that my brain's not firing on all cylinders right now. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, I, I don't know if it was the fever earlier. Bruno, you didn't catch this bit, but I had a fever uh, earlier today. Uh, that broke. I was in a I was in a crazy sweat for a little while right before the show, and um, yeah. So yeah, since since about two or three today, just been sluggish, lethargic, fever hit, and then and then my brain just hasn't been the same. So I probably need to just go to bed. All right, but you got to tell me if I got like boogers on my face though. So you know, just uh, I don't see any. All right, sweet. Um.